Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Thanks for the Knowledge, Fanbyte's weekly news show rounding up the headlines in games and entertainment in one handy podcast. I'm your host, head of Fanbyte Media, John Warren. Hope everyone has had a wonderful week. Uh, I've got a really great show for you today. Uh, Andrew Schuldice, the creator of Tunic is on the show to discuss uh, the long development process of the game, uh, his design philosophies, and much more. It was a really wonderful conversation. Uh, first, we have to get to this week's top stories. According to a new report from Bloomberg, Sony is preparing to unveil their new Spartacus subscription service as early as this coming week. Uh, the subscription service is supposed to uh, compete with Xbox Game Pass, which has amassed 25 million subscribers who get access to many different titles at any given time. There are some shuffling in and out of those games, uh, but it's supposed to compete with that and combine their PlayStation Now and PlayStation Plus services. There will be multiple tiers, according to the report, as has been previously suggested, uh, with the highest tier allowing streaming as well as access to exclusive demos on the platform. Uh, previously, it had also been reported that the highest tier would also include some backwards compatibility to older titles, though the new report does not really touch upon that at all. Um, the new service, uh, whatever it's called, it probably won't be called Spartacus, uh, will be a bit at, at a disadvantage. According to folks inside Sony who wanted to remain anonymous for obvious reasons, uh, the service will probably not feature Xbox Game Pass's uh, typical uh, uh, strategy of actually putting some of their biggest games on the platform day one. So, for example, God of War Ragnarok is not expected to appear on this service as a day one download for any sort of uh, for any subscription. Subscriber. Uh, so that's a bit of an interesting wrinkle in this. Uh, it's got multiple tiers. Uh, the most expensive one, I think, was uh, suggested being higher than what Xbox Game Pass, but without that kind of day one um, availability to some of the biggest games. So it's a little bit confusing what their strategy is, is here, but hopefully we'll get uh, some of these answers to some burning questions uh, this coming week or later, could be, could be later. Uh, when this is finally unveiled. Activision Blizzard is facing another lawsuit, this time in a Los Angeles County Superior Court filed by an anonymous female employee of Activision Blizzard who says the company has allowed, quote, rampant sexism, harassment, and discrimination against its female employees, specifically citing excessive workplace drinking, which fostered unwanted sexual advances to female employees, banter about male employees' sexual encounters, rape jokes, and 
and groping of female employees' breasts and bodies, end quote. The lawsuit also name-drops a lot of people, including CEO Bobby Kotick, uh, Mark Skorupa, Derek Ingalls, Ben Kilmore, Sonal Patel, Danny Wynn, and a lot of folks in the IT department in Activision Blizzard. It is a 28-page document. You can read it over at fanbyte.com. We have a link right there for you to read the whole thing. It is tough to read just as a warning. Uh, and it is just the latest in a long string of issues that Activision Blizzard has had, both in terms of its harassment uh, allegations as well as allegations of workplace and wage discrimination. In a related story, uh, Microsoft has been contacted by members of Activision Blizzard, specifically from the Raven QA software team, who you might remember have unionized, to ask if they will stand in the way of their unionization efforts being recognized by Activision Blizzard. Activision Blizzard has failed to uh, recognize the union so far, and they wrote to uh, the, the employees at Raven wrote to Microsoft asking if they can either aid in it or uh, can at least give them answers as to what will happen with their union once the uh, once the sale to Microsoft takes place. Microsoft says they will not stand in the way uh, if Activision Blizzard recognizes a union. Uh, Microsoft respects Activision Blizzard employees' right to choose whether to be represented by a labor organization, and we will honor those decisions, is the statement that Microsoft gave to Axios. Uh, that is an interesting wrinkle. I mean, it's a little tricky because Microsoft could probably say, hey, Activision Blizzard should recognize this union and we will recognize it. Um, but instead, they're making it more open-ended, allowing Activision Blizzard the room to possibly stand in its way until uh, until it either dies or comes to a head, which is frustrating, but not all that surprising. Um, moving on to a, a story about Sony. Uh, Sony has acquired Haven Studios. Its debut game has not even been announced yet. Uh, Haven Studios is helmed by Jade Raymond, who of course is an ex-Ubisoft, ex-EA, and now an ex-Google employee. And her team is working on a yet uh, yet to be announced multiplayer project that has apparently been so lucrative for uh, Sony as well as Haven that they just decided to go ahead and make it official. I don't know quite how that works um, because nobody knows what this project is yet, but I'm not going to worry about that too much. Uh, Haven Studios will apparently be a pretty major part of Sony's first party slate over the next few years. Uh, and uh, that's good. Uh, a lot of folks uh, have gotten back on their feet after leaving other studios when they join Haven. Uh, so that's good news. Um, speaking of brand new projects, CD Projekt Red has announced a new Witcher game, which they're calling a new saga. Specifically, they're not saying it is The Witcher 4. Uh, they are saying it's going to be built in Unreal Engine 3. Uh, they had built their previous games in Red Engine, including Cyberpunk 2077, and they're saying as part of a 15-year partnership with Epic Games, they will be using Unreal Engine 5. It's just a better way to do the things that they want to do, uh, and there's a lot more documentation and a lot more support were the reasons cited by CD Projekt Red when they announced the change. Uh, Cyberpunk 2077's expansion will still be built in Red engine, but it appears that after that is done, the entire studio will be shifting to Unreal Engine 5. Now, as for the game itself, we really don't know any details about the new Witcher saga, uh, except I will speculate. I'll speculate about some stuff and then tell you what we know. I'm going to speculate right off the bat that it's not going to star Geralt. Geralt might show up in the game, but I think 
based on what we saw with The Witcher 3, and I won't spoil anything, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to have him star in the new saga of The Witcher. Of course, uh, Geralt has an adopted daughter, Ciri, who played a major role in The Witcher 3, as well as The Witcher TV show. Uh, so it wouldn't be surprising if we played as Siri. However, the uh, little teaser poster that they released with the announcement shows a pendant, and it's not the wolf pendant that we've come to know with Geralt of Rivia. It is a cat, and not just any cat, but a lynx, which uh, points to a new school that is apparently being built by Lambert and Kira Metz, two characters from previous installments of the games and books. Uh, and I don't know. I I think, and again, this is speculation, if it's the school of the Lynx and they're saying it's just something in the new, it's something new in the Witcher saga, I'm going to put my money on, a, on, a, on an original character or uh, a player character created uh, a la Cyberpunk 2077. It's just my hunch. I have nothing to back that up. It could just be Siri. Hell, it could just be Geralt. I could be wrong, but that's uh, that's where I that's where my speculation is landing. We talked about this a little bit more on Ninety Nine Potions, our RPG podcast on the uh, Fanboy Podcast Network. So, if you want to uh, get a deeper sense of where we are on this game, you can listen to that conversation. Speaking of big, beefy RPGs, you know Casey Hudson. He was the general manager over at Bioware for a long time, responsible for a lot of what you eventually played in the Mass Effect series. Uh, he left Bioware, of course, last year and founded a brand new studio called Humanoid Studios, and they are working on an original science fiction IP. They've released some concept art, and I just be totally honest, it looks a lot like Mass Effect, which is fine. Honestly, if Casey Hudson was responsible for the best parts of Mass Effect, which may or may not be true, then we can expect some really nice things from this game whenever it comes out. But who knows? Uh, and we still don't really have a whole lot of updates about Mass Effect, by the way. Uh, Bioware has been pretty uh, tight-lipped about the fate of Dragon Age 4, and uh, Mass Effect seems to be even further behind on that schedule, which is a little distressing. Uh, speaking of distressing, uh, Sonic and Knuckles are getting furry Xbox controllers to celebrate the release of Sonic the Hedgehog 2's theatrical uh, uh, theatrical debut. Um, it's uh, going to be part of an Xbox giveaway. You won't be able to buy these anywhere. It's part of a contest. I think the link to that contest is over at fanbyte.com in the article that Kenneth Shepard wrote. Uh, these controllers are horrifying but if you're really into that kind of thing then you should maybe enter this contest and, and check it out a nintendo switch has gotten folders uh, you can now organize your games based on little folders it's kind of a cool organization tool because uh, if you're anything like me you know i've got i don't know maybe 20 25 35 games on my switch I've got a big, big, big SD card with a lot of games on it. That stuff does get pretty disorganized. It does make sense to put things in folders. And in fact, we have ideas of what those folders could be. We have a piece right now with suggestions of little folders that you can make for yourself. It's very good. You should go read it. And, uh, and yeah, start making those folders. Start organizing your life, okay? 
Sony announced this week that they'll be adding variable refresh rate to the PS5 in the coming months, which is pretty cool. It's a really interesting departure from what we know from uh, most console settings uh, where you know they want to lock things into a certain place as to avoid technical issues. Variable refresh rate could really improve things, games that really are not optimized for certain settings, uh, but it also could create technical hitches for other games. So they are figuring out the best way to roll this out and the probably the balance of power they want to give players as opposed to the ease of use of something like that. But it's a very interesting thing to add to a piece of console hardware. We'll see how that rollout goes. Uh, it's still an interesting thing that uh, interesting concept that Sony and even Microsoft are toying with a lot of system settings, things that you typically aren't able to do unless you're on PC. So it's kind of cool. Finally, Epic is adding two-time gold medalist Chloe Kim to Fortnite. Uh, she's got her own ice dragon. It's a very cool glider thing. If you like Fortnite, you should get on that because right now they've actually taken building out of that game in a patch, which is very interesting. I think it's going to be a limited time thing. I don't think they're going to stick with it. But often when they do these limited time things, they basically test the popularity of something to see if they want to add it later. So yeah, right now you know, there's no building in Fortnite. But there is Chloe Kim which is very cool. Chloe Kim won two gold medals in the halfpipe in the 2022 Beijing Olympics, which is pretty neat. I didn't watch any of those, except for a bunch of highlights of uh, Chloe Kim being very, very good at doing snowboarding. So that's cool. Snowboarding and Fortnite, two, two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> Did I say great tastes that taste great together? Well, Tunic is a, a very interesting game mixing a lot of fundamental design ideas from some of the big classics in the uh, canon of video game history. And I was super lucky to get to talk to Andrew Schuldice, the creator of Tunic, about that and so much more. My guest is lead designer, engineer, and artist behind isometric action adventure game Tunic, which surprise launched on Xbox Game Pass, PC, and Mac OS on March 16th. I'm very pleased to have Andrew Schuldice on the show today. Hi, Andrew. Hi, how's it going? Very good. Very good. I um I we we talked a little bit before recording about the the last few weeks, but I just want to kind of start there. The, the world has had more than a week with Tunic. How are you feeling now that it's out in the wild? Uh, a, a little bit weird, to be honest. <laughs> uh, it's strange to have worked on something for so long, especially something that is centered so much around secrets, mm -hmm. and now having it out there in the world for everyone to, to enjoy. But the response has been... Um, really wonderful it, it's tremendous and it's uh it, it feels very good that people are enjoying the game on the whole yeah i bet um have there been any reactions that have surprised you from folks uh, i mean the reception in general um surprised me you know there's <laughs> the it's it's a game that doesn't tell you what to do mm -hmm. and leans very heavily on an intimate understanding of patterns in game design, you know, some very recent and some very old. Uh, so I was fully expecting it to be the sort of game that 
you know, really landed for a small handful of people, but you know, maybe maybe wouldn't see. Um, I don't know what you. I guess like nearly universal acclaim. Uh, yeah, uh, sure. Which is sort of wild. Yeah. Um, so that that was what was surprising is that the the sorts of things that I value in video games, you know, like exploration, discovery, tr- true secrets, that sort of thing, was something that uh, a a section of the populace that was broader than I thought really, really enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I I bet that's been pretty rewarding. Um, When was the call made to drop it suddenly, you know, on, on game pass? And was that an easy choice to make? The, the decision to put it on uh, game pass was, yeah, a pretty, pretty easy one to make in that it makes a lot of sense for, for tunic. I think it's a, it's a small game in a lot of senses, you know. It's it's about a little fox, and it's made by a very small team, and so the idea of being able to get it in front of as many people as have Xbox Game Pass just meant a great deal. It still feels to me like sort of a, a, a small niche thing, mm-hmm. and so that sort of audience just you know it's it's special. Yeah. So for folks that may not totally know, the, the development of Tunic started, I, I, by my count, about seven years ago. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's about right. Wow. Um, that, that's, that is such a long time to be working on on one project. But you, you, you had some help at some point, right? You, you did work on this uh, up until a certain point. When did you bring other folks into the project? Well, very early on, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do everything. Okay. So, you know, I can I can do art and animation and level design and, and all the programming, but I knew that I couldn't do sound design and I couldn't do music. So pretty early on, I, I started looking for, for folks who might be interested and um, Power Up Audio um, was pointed out to me as like, oh, these folks are really, really good. And turns out they love secrets as well. And so that team in particular, Kevin Regami, came on board to do audio direction. Mm. And similarly, uh, Life Formed, which is um, Terrence Lee and Janice Kwan, uh, had made some music that I fell in love with mm. and had been playing a lot when I was thinking about like, oh, what if I made a game about secrets? And so I reached out to to them and and they were excited as well. So they came on board pretty early on um, and their contribution sort of like obviously ramped up as we got closer and closer to release. Because at the beginning it was just like, ah, I've got this prototype. Yeah. There's not really much to it at this point. Um, and then as time progressed, it was clear that there are not only things that I know I don't know how to do, but there are lots and lots of things that I don't know I don't know how to do <laughs> or that even are things that need to be done. So for the myriad of sort of business related things mm. and just sort of industry wisdom, I uh, partnered up with Felix Kramer, who later um, uh, helped me uh, get in contact with um, Finji, who are publishing it. Actually, the relationship with Finji is an interesting one because it. I, I was looking back at emails and realizing it was very, very early in this project that I started talking to Adam and Becca mm-hmm. over there, not because they were publishing the game at that point, but because they are just industry veterans who like right. helping people. And so, yeah, when it came time to decide like, oh, hey, this this game needs some you know actual sort of 
you know, business wisdom behind it. It just made a lot of sense to partner up with them. And, and then uh, finally, most recently, I say recently, it's been a couple of years now, um, to help get the thing over the finish line, we enlisted the help of uh, Eric Billingsley to um, do like decoration and some special effects and stuff like that. He's a, he's a talented programmer, but also has a, a, a fine visual eye. So he was a, a good choice there. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about now and, and I might be projecting a little, so I apologize if that's, if that's the case, but I, I imagine if you're, you're, you're working on this for more than half a decade, um, you're, you've got plenty of ideas for other things during this time. Um, were you, was that hard to maintain your focus on tunic? Did some of those ideas, if you had them eventually make it into this game? Um, I'm curious about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, because Tunic is sort of a, it, it's sort of everything I want a video game to be, uh -huh. if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, not actually, you know, it's it's an actual, you know, real product as opposed to this, you know, imaginary dream thing. Right. But uh, it meant that every idea that I had felt like, oh, maybe this can slot into mm. the, the grand Tunic plan. So it was fairly easy to stay focused on it. Um, because it was sort of all-consuming. Uh, however, there are plenty of things, ideas that um, were needed into the project and then got needed out or broken off or rearranged in, in different ways. That, that sort of characterizes the development of this game is a, a very iterative process. You know, lots of things got introduced and refined and torn out and re-added later. I, I want to talk about The Legend of Zelda for a second because I feel like we have to. Um, I, I, as an old timer myself, um, I was shocked because obviously the, the parallels to to Zelda, the little green tunic and the shield and the sword, you know, th those things are visual components that I that anyone can immediately identify, right? But um, as someone whose first Zelda was the first Zelda. Um, I was pretty shocked at how, um, at how much you were trying to, or at least it seemed like you were trying to evoke the feeling of, Hey, you're just a little guy and I'm not going to tell you anything else. Um, what, were you ever tempted to dip into other, uh, entries in that franchise to maybe explain things more? Or were you like, Hey, I really just want this to be a totally, uh, a solitary experience where you've got to figure this stuff stuff out on your own. Absolutely. So my the the greatest uh, or most prominent touchstone in the Zelda franchise for this game was definitely that first one. Yeah. And from the very start, the idea of welcome to video game go it was sort of you know like baked right into it. Right. The idea of a you know, I occasionally toyed with things like uh, an opening text crawl in a strange glyph language mm -hmm. or uh, an unusual start where you begin the game and then shortly thereafter the game sort of restarts for a reason. Um, but all the while, this sort of, you know, oblique, something strange is going on, I'm not meant to be here sort of feeling was was definitely a part of it. Yeah. And that that feeling, like you said, of you know, I'm just this this old person who's waking <laughs> up on a beach, uh, go on an adventure, uh, is yeah. That like I love that. I love being. I, I love experiences where 
you know that there's lots and lots and lots to find, but you don't know where any of it is. Mm. You just know it's out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's that's very exciting to me. I haven't I haven't dipped into Elden Ring yet, mm. but uh, from everything I've heard, it's that sort of thing. So I'm excited to that's, relax and give that a shot. It's a wonderful segue to the next question I have, because I, I think one of the funniest things that this industry has done for me in a while is... Uh, I played Elden Ring for two weeks and I'm sitting here going, you know, the March 16th thing happens. I go, oh my God, thank God I can play something else for a second that will be maybe not as challenging and maybe kind of a little, you know, more concrete in terms of how I feel about, you know, a game and whatever. And I'm like, great, Tunic is out. I'll play that. And I have to tell you that the parallels there are pretty shocking. It, It does feel like two games have come out in the past few weeks that are uh, almost singular in the way that they kind of don't hold your hand. And I have loved playing Tunic, um, but it is it was very funny to me that I, I expected something from Tunic that was almost immediately, it was like, no, 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 like we're, we're, we're not going to do this to you. Uh, we're not going to help you out here too. So it's been really fun to play two games with this, incredible sense of exploration um so i'm definitely looking forward to to hearing how you feel about elden ring because it's definitely an interesting experience so in terms of elden ring let's talk about dark souls and things like that for a second because i I know that some parallels have been made um i i tunic has made me confront the difference between (laughs) something being challenging and something being difficult and i feel like that is a a fine line to walk where I feel like some people just want to throw their hands up and say, this game is hard instead of it being challenging. Does that distinction kind of ring true to you? Um, hmm. I guess I, I'm trying to f- suss out the, the, <laughs> the semantic difference between challenging and difficult. I, I guess to me where it comes down is that does the, does the game throw things at you um, that feel punitive versus just challenging expectations, right? I feel like uh, okay. I feel like that's kind of the distinction I'm drawing when I play Tunic. Right. Um, yeah, for sure. So we we spent a lot of time fine-tuning difficulty and in a broader sense trying to understand what flavors of challenge were you know, tunicky and which weren't, and really the uh, the the feeling we want to evoke with the game is one of feeling like you are in a place where you don't belong. Whether that's trying to solve a puzzle that the game has given you very little um, information about, or you know, bumbling into an area that you're not ready for, or confronting a foe that seems way too strong. Those sorts of feelings of wait, the game is not expecting me to do this. I, I maybe I'm transgressing somehow. You know, maybe I'm doing something that I'm quote unquote not supposed to do. Like that's a that's a powerful feeling. Yeah, and it can manifest in a few different ways. You know, like puzzles or combat or whatever. Um, and so the the most valuable sorts of challenges in in any video game, I think, are the ones where you 
you can get away with something, if that makes sense. You yeah. can maybe approach the problem from a different angle or use an item in a strange way. Um, the, like, uh, you know, spoilers about the contents of Tunic, there are, you know, bombs or firecrackers you can mm -hmm. get, and they're um, deliberately a little bit overpowered. So it can feel like, oh, I have these, this is a really good treasure, and I can use them to maybe, like, get past this enemy uh, that's causing a problem. Uh, and that's a good feeling. There are also, you know, maybe ways to get an edge in in a certain certain situations that might be considered sort of bad design or or broken, you know, overpowered. Um, I, I think that's generally speaking fine and good to mm -hmm. to have give people the option to to do something that maybe feels like they you know they're they're pulling a fast one somehow. Yeah. Um, to to that point, when I was playing this game on stream uh, a few days ago. Uh, there were people in the chat going, I have no idea how you have this item right now. I have no idea uh, how you got to this place with the magic wand or whatever. And um, I I immediately thought about the testing process of this game. And, you know, if you can do things in a lot of different orders, if you can do things in a way that don't necessarily feel intended, if, you know, you can work your way around something. H how was that process? And did you change anything in the structure of the game based on your testing? Uh, yeah, for sure. So it, it was a big challenge. So early on, I laid out the but my, my background from before this was in um, sort of casual adventure games okay. important click style games and so and I, I designed a bunch of those and, and my process then was trying to make this list of dependencies of you know which items do you need to get to these locations so what is the flow through the game what is the, the sort of like critical path and I was trying to annotate this graph basically with uh, notes that said this is a hard gate or this is a soft gate or mm -hmm. maybe there's a dotted line showing that you don't actually need this item because that's that's important this idea of oh this helps but it's not strictly necessary um, and it became extremely unwieldy it, it just didn't make sense as a document it wasn't useful uh, it, you know I couldn't look at it and be like ah, I understand how the game is supposed to work now it was dense with all these exceptions mm -hmm. And so I abandoned that that style of thing and, and didn't really come up with an ideal way of representing it. But the this core idea of firm gates, you know, you've got, you know, hard gates like yeah, you need you, the key you, to get through the store. You have to have you have to have the tchotchke to get through the store or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a few of those in Tunic, sure. but my I vastly prefer the ones where you are introduced to an idea that you as a human being now know. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have anything to do with your character necessarily. But now that you know it, you can you know, maybe approach things in a different order or um, use that technique in other parts of the game. And so, yes, that it made it very challenging. And, and the I mentioned before about you know things that I didn't even realize were as valuable as they are. Um, I, I had always known the the value of QA, but the QA team at Finji has just been phenomenal mm -hmm. and like really fully understanding the game and like where you can go and what you can do and the design philosophy behind a lot of those things. And so yes, they they definitely did a lot of work doing things out of order, um, you know, intentionally skipping things that that sort of that sort of stuff. And on top of all of that, there's also um, speed running considerations. So <laughs> yeah. the uh, 
the audio designer Kevin, uh, who I mentioned before, is is a speedrunner and is sort of an important part of of that community. Like Power Up has done a bunch of in kind work for um, GDQ over the years. Yeah, and there are if you if you find something in the game and think ah speedrunners would like this, yes. it's, chances are Kevin has had input on that. Like there are. Um, intentional skips and just as a wink and a nod to show like oh yeah we know we'll sometimes you know play a little sound effect to let people know that they've done something that we know they're not supposed to do but we've intentionally let them do it that's really fun yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to you know stick only speed runs or something uh next year uh, or whatever or or next month whenever folks uh start to to do these things um yeah, speedrunning will be really wild for this, I, I think, because of those, those soft gates and things like that. Um, I, I immediately am looking forward to that. Um, in terms of uh, the instruction booklet uh, uh, mechanic, because I obviously a lot's been made about that, and it's a very interesting uh, way to kind of tutorialize parts of the game and, and flesh it out. When did that become part of the project um, in, in its development? Pretty early on, okay. um, it wasn't from the very beginning. Like that wasn't that wasn't the spark that said, "Ah, here's a here's a game." Um, this, <laughs> this is an idea that, around which a game could be built. But pretty soon in development, it became clear that that was uh, too too neat an idea not to include. And in a, in a big way, the game is sort of eventually evolved to revolve around this. And I just remember thinking, "Oh yeah, I, I love instruction manuals." Um, wouldn't it be neat if there was an instruction manual? And then realizing that those old manuals, especially the ones in um, Zelda One, yeah. I've got a, I've actually got a copy of the the Zelda Two one in front of you right now, and and it's a little bit less so with this one, but especially with Zelda One, the experience of reading the manual is sort of a part of the game design. Like it will say things like, um, uh, "Oh, here." Here's how you get to the first dungeon. It's got like a, a map, and maybe it tells you where the second one is or the the third one, but it doesn't show you exactly how to get there. Um, lets you f- literally fill in the blanks. And sometimes there will be notes in the margin that say, mm-hmm. uh, "Did did you know that there are secrets all over the place? Um, oh, and and there's another thing that's hidden in the mountain. That's dot dot dot. Oh, but that's a secret. You know, like it. The there's almost game design as part of those old documents. Yes. And so wouldn't it be neat if you really rolled it into the game and you collected those pages as you went? And the idea of, you know, like uh, maps and uh, bestiary or tips on how to beat bosses and the story and all like all kinds of neat things that have that sort of like tangential um, storytelling that that is enjoyable to me. It's just like the the manual just sort of uh, it seemed to, to slot into those ideas really nicely. Yeah, that makes sense. Collecting those pages, uh, there are you know, little hand. There's handwriting in there. Is that your handwriting? May I ask? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. It's my handwriting. It's very, it's it's very interesting. Um, yeah, it reminded me a ton of of NES instruction books because. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, for folks that may not know that haven't been playing games for that long, um, games didn't always explain stuff. And you, you often did have to uh, uh, do that. I remember Super Mario 3, the flying mechanic was completely foreign to, I think, most players in you know 1989 or whatever, 1990. Um, and it was all about the instruction manual to, to teach that mechanic. So, um, 
yeah, it's a very cool way to do things. Uh, in terms of secrets, are there secrets in this game that you're expecting folks to not find for a long time? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's um, the there's a community uh, of people that have done um, <clears throat> uh, tremendous work, sort of finding all of the things that we've hidden there. There's uh, so this is the the Finji Discord. Mm-hmm. has a, a a tunic channel where people can go in and, and chat about things but there's also the um uh the spoilers channel nice everything is spoiler tagged and people can go in there and you know share their secret techniques and the things that they found and then beyond that there's another channel <laughs> called uh, uh deeper secrets and <clears throat> that is where people have been um just going wild on this thing and really trying to to uh, ring out every little secret there and they've done they've done a really good job i think there's one or two things that i haven't seen anybody mention yet nice um but when when designing the game we would often use percentages to really roughly describe how secret we thought something should be mm-hmm. so uh, or or you know here's something that's not really a secret that's a 100% or a 90% sort of thing you know and then there are optional things that are maybe a 10% or 15% that are the sorts of things that you don't need to find to finish the game but if you look at someone's screen and they say hey wait you you look different or where did you get that item um you know they, it could that can be shared and you get that sort of community feeling uh, and then there's there's stuff that uh in particular Kevin would describe as content for no one, which is stuff that is there just because we think it's fun. And uh, who knows if anybody will unearth it. That's the, I think that's the best kind of stuff, though. Um, just stuff for you, you know, stuff, yeah. stuff, stuff to amuse yourself. Um, the, the fallout from that is that uh, if someone does stumble into it and finds it, then it genuinely feels like a secret. You know, they sure. The, the the greatest way to make a secret feel like it wasn't meant to be found is to not have it meant to be found. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that uh, I mean, I, I will never have the experience of finding a secret in this game, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, that's, uh, that's my favorite kind of secret is the one that feels like it wasn't meant to be found. That's fun. Um, did you, during this, this, this long development process, did you, pay a lot of attention to kind of contemporary action adventure games did did anything you play or saw during that seven-year period kind of seep into this or make you second guess things about tunic's design uh oh constantly yeah always second guessing sure uh, everything um even now uh now that it's (laughs) out i'm like oh no we should have fixed that um i think uh the the like uh, kinesthetic qualities of the the combat were inspired in large part by Bloodborne, which I had not played when I started working on the game. Sure. But after playing it, I was like, "This is dope!" Yeah, uh, and so trying to to work in that sort of you know feeling in there. Um, and there are yeah plenty of other games um, that have uh, inspired it, and certainly lots of games that have come out that have made me think. Oh shucks, they're doing this. They're doing this really well. <laughs> yeah, I, I Death's Door is the one that comes to mind to me uh, of just one that I think when that came out, I was like, that oh, looks a lot like Tunic. But I, what I've really come to appreciate about both games is that um, they both do certain things unbelievably well, and I think 
Tunic really has set itself aside from a lot of other games, especially in terms of the exploration quality and secret finding and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I can, I can see those influences, especially Bloodborne with the, uh, so much rolling, so much dodging. <laughs> yeah, you betcha. Um, yeah, some of those boss battles have been really, really challenging, uh, especially with, um, you know, the limited kind of arsenal you have. Um, how, how did kind of designing a boss battle start for you? I, th- I think there are probably good ways to design a boss fight where you, you know, have grid paper and map out right. where attacks are going to be and evenly distributing the, the challenge levels of certain things. Um, and uh, I may- maybe we'll take an approach like that in the future now that I've learned a, a thing or two. But a, a lot of the, the boss fights start for me with sort of a like an emotional root, if that makes sense. That sounds very, yeah. you know, uh, uh, philosophical or whatever. But um, it, it's the feeling of this is, you know, uh, uh, a, a proud, you know, wizard with a giant sword, <laughs> right? Or this is a, uh, uh, a a robot whose only purpose is to prevent you from doing something. Like all of the, or you know, some sort of giant war machine. All of those feelings of, you know, what is the, what does, what does this character want, helps feed into, you know, what do it, its attacks look like and stuff like that. And then that usually turns into a, a rough, I guess you'd call it like a, a, a story of what we expect or maybe want the player's experience to be like you walk in and you are terrified at this enormous foe and you get obliterated by it just smashing you and Mm -hmm. you think oh no i'm never going to be able to fight this and then you you play it and you realize okay i can i can dodge out of the way of these attacks but there are these other ones that i don't know how to deal with um and oh maybe the challenge now is just getting close enough and so i need to make sure that i hide behind obstacles and and wait for my moment to get close and then i can get some hits in before i need to to move away again that's sort of like that sort of flow um and on top of all of that it's just like layers and layers of iteration of this this looks stupid or this isn't cool enough or this part's too easy you know that sort of thing <laughs> yeah in terms of kind of the narrative structure of this game it's it's fairly minimal in in how it uh, unfolds, but when did kind of the, the scope of the journey that you wanted this Fox to take come together? Was that something at the very early stage or did you also iterate on that? There was a lot of iteration on the sort of gross overarching structure of it. Sure. Since very early on, I had wanted to make something with sort of different strata, you know, and it, it sort of ended up being like that where, you know, you, you play a game, you're thinking, I'm going on a quest. I'm going <laughs> to go do some things, see what I can see. And then, you know, realizing there's this larger world and maybe you have like a specific goal in mind and then realizing there's some deeper secrets underneath that, blah, blah, blah. So that that sort of layered reveal feeling had been around for a long time. But one of the, the biggest design challenges, I think, for, for me was turning that vague sort of dream of wouldn't it be neat if a video game surprised people and turned it into like an actual concrete like here are the things that you go and do Mm -hmm. um and the the uh the urge is uh oh you want to make a a video game feel big 
just add infinite content and that's impractical right. for a team for a small team let alone the team as small as this one so uh it was there was yeah a lot of uh a lot of flowcharting and sketching and notebooking about you know like what what is the sort of order of operations in this game and how it can feel like a like a grand quest yeah um for the the fox design it, itself uh this is a character we're going to look at for you know t- 10 hours or so um when did the design of the fox come together it seems like we've seen the same fox for you know five years however long the game has kind of been on 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 people's radar um and how important was it to you to have this kind of simple iconic look to your protagonist uh, having having the fox be iconic is a is a good way of putting it. Not necessarily as in like you know it's, it's historical, but, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not not like that. But right. having it be something that people can look at and say, "Hey, that's me." Yes. Because very early on, I was not especially confident in my three D modeling skills, and so <laughs> being able to say, you know, like I want anybody to be able to map themselves onto this character mm. that sort of would require something like a character creator or something like that, sure. and. If you're making a, a an actual person, like how do you how do you make sure that you know you're you can have a you know a robust sort of you know set of appearances blah blah blah. So it's like oh well, I'll just have a generic anthropomorphic animal character. That's probably a good place to start. And um, the that is sort of like a, a vessel that as many people as possible can can see themselves as. And fox was just maybe I think the first idea like oh yeah you're a fox why not. Um, and that has sort of worked out, I think. Like it seems like foxes are pretty popular, and also they um, sure. you know, get into mischief. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's um, there's also the fact that you know it's got a, a a big head and a big bushy tail means that like um, in combat, the sort of player character's orientation towards enemies is is obvious, uh, and um, you know, just a, a little bit of bounciness helps add visual appeal, I think. I was going to use that exact word in my next question. There, There is this kind of tangible bounciness. I can feel like I can reach into my screen and pick up one of those big bushes with my fingers and, <laughs> and move it. How, what that kind of tangibility, was that important for you in, in your art style? What was that trying to maybe convey or express, do you think? For sure, yeah. So the... This is getting into like uh, deep design. I, lo- I love it. Yeah, please. Uh, be- and it always makes me feel um, like I, I've got a, a bit of a, a big head when I, I'm talking. Let's step about up it. to the lectern, Andrew. Let's go. I love it. So <laughs> the uh, there there's this uh, I, I don't know the philosophy. Maybe sounds very very big, but this <laughs> idea in the game that the physical representations of things should be fairly honest about their form. Mm. Uh, And that's tricky with isometric because it's very easy to have things overlap in a certain way where depth becomes uh, hard to see. Like normally in a day-to-day life, if you have stereoscopic vision, then you're able to determine depth naturally. And in a video game, often just subtle camera movements will allow you to have the, you know, the the perspective perspective or perspective projection of the camera will reveal depth information. But with isometric camera, you don't really get that. Like you can tilt the camera a little bit in tunic by targeting, and that will help you see what's going on. But more often than not, it's this very like compressed flat view. And so things need to be 
extremely clear about what their form was. And that means that things like a bush that is made up of uh, placards or a bunch of individual leaves didn't really work. You know, anytime we tried soft visual effects to represent physical objects, it, it felt wrong. It felt like it was very clearly just a bunch of, uh, you know, billboards in the environment. Uh, so we tried really hard to make sure that any time we added a visual element, it had the same sort of visual complexity or like um, noisiness as the other things in the environment, and that it was very clear by looking at it what its dimensions and, and form was. Yeah. No, that that's very interesting. Uh, no, I I love I love that kind of thinking about how to um, put together scenes, especially in an isometric game. Because yeah, there are there are moments where things are very kind of locked into a, a certain view. But I think that depth of object really helps with a, a lot of that. Um, mm-hmm. I also feel yeah. like you know there are moments where um, kind of talking about kind of setting a scene and shifting your view. There are moments where you can look through these telescopes and kind of see more of the uh, more of the world around you. I <laughs> I immediately thought of like Metal Gear Solid Five when I when I did those things, which is oh, such really? a weird thing because yeah, it's to me it felt like looking through binoculars at a base, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna scope out what I'm gonna do. I can see that there is. Uh, I'm going to call it a bonfire just because that's the easiest shorthand. I can see there's a bonfire on the, on the far periphery of my screen, trying to map out a path. Were, were you thinking of, of things in terms of kind of planning when you were looking at, you know, uh, like, are you trying to give folks more of a view of what, what they can expect from other areas with that mechanic? Yeah, for sure. So there's a a couple of things that I think that, we, we get with those sorts of um, broader views. Right. Uh, one is uh, navigation. From very early on, a challenge with this game has been helping people move around the world. Yeah. And it's a game about being lost just a little bit, yeah. um, but making sure that people had landmarks that they could associate uh, was important. And, and early on, that's hard because the world is mostly just gray rectangles. And so mm-hmm. in play tests, I, I got lost. I didn't know where I was, was a common refrain. So making sure that there are um, unique sort of structural and set pieces sorts of things to help people orient themselves is important. And uh, pulling the camera out at certain moments to sort of give a little bit of context and, you know, finding maps in the manual, that sort of thing helps with with all of that and and on on top of that the uh, i like being able to feel like i've prepared properly uh for encounters or that i'm getting an edge by looking down and thinking like oh i can see there's a monster down there and i know that i need to you know use this sort of item and and feeling like you've got a little bit of information about an area before you go in is is exciting to me yeah yeah, it's definitely tantalizing to get to see parts of the world that you haven't gotten to yet. Um, okay, I mean, you you waxed a little philosophical about design, so I'll ask a I'll ask another question that might sound obnoxious, but I, I it's just my read on it. Do you kind of see yourself in the fox? Because my my immediate read on this game, not too long into it, kind of knowing what I know about its development, was this is kind of 
an, an expression of what it's like to build something uh, largely on your own, I feel like. <laughs> like setting out onto the, the kind wild of, unknown yeah. as a little I mean, box. You're, you're piecing together this language, right? You, that you don't understand. You're, you're, you're the, the mechanics of the world around you aren't immediately apparent. I, I, you know, when I've done game design, that's how it feels to me. So I was I'm curious about if that kind of seeped into the experience of the Fox itself. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Um, the uh, emotional, um, payload of the game that i most treasure is feeling of bravery and striking out into the wild unknown mm, and, and mm-hmm. discovery and stuff like that and and i certainly had that very early on when working on the game just being absolutely overjoyed with being able to create and and try things and and experiment uh, and pretty soon i realized like oh you know it's this is this is a scary hostile world in a, in a lot of ways so yeah i think there is a little bit of that but i i think the where those two stories diverge is that in tunic um most things want to kill you <laughs> and uh the uh in in real life it turns out if you reach out and ask for help you will get help and if you uh you know are are uh, you know, in, enlist the help of, of kind people and are kind in turn, then, um, you know, you, you can, you can get through it. Uh, maybe there is a, a little bit of a parallel for someone playing the game where maybe they, if they get stuck on something, they can ask a friend for help and get some tips on how to approach a particular problem. Um, but yeah, I like, I like that take. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, reach out for help. That's, uh, I think that's a good, good place to leave it. Um, cause yeah, we all need, we all need a little bit of help, uh, putting some big together. Um, Andrew Schuldice, I really appreciate your time. Um, this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, anything else you, you want to plug? Uh, well, if you have not yet played the game but are interested, if it, this piques your interest, then you can play the game uh, right now um, via Xbox Game Pass. Go and get it on your Xbox right now for free if you've got Game Pass. It's also available on uh, Windows 10 via Xbox Game Pass for Windows. Um, or if you prefer um, getting it on Steam, it's available there as well as a number of other uh, PC storefronts. It's also available on Mac if you like. Um, yeah, and you know, come hang out on the Discord, discord.gg/finji to you know exchange tips and and solve some puzzles and stuff like that. Um, yeah, that sounds like a great place to to share secrets and stuff. That's amazing. Um, if you uh, if you're uh, if you're a fanbyte.com uh, reader at home, uh, we do have a review up for Tunic uh, from Grant Stoner, who also did um, a big kind of accessibility piece on the game. There's a lot of really nice accessibility stuff in Tunic. So if you're having a really hard time, there are toggles you can make, which I think are are great. It's very good. Uh- yeah, that was an easy decision to make. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's going to help out a lot of folks. I think it's a really, really nice touch. Uh, all right, Andrew, thanks again. I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. I don't know about y'all, but I am exhausted from March's slate of games. February was a lot, but March has been almost as much. I mean, Tunic is great. Uh, The new Kirby is pretty cool. Even Tiny Tina's Wonderlands is apparently good. I'm distressed by this idea, but I might check it out. 
I need something kind of mindless to take me away from Elden Ring because I've just been playing a lot of Elden Ring. There are games coming out this week, though, uh, that we that are notable. We should talk about them. Uh, one is Crusader Kings 3, which is coming to PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X and S on March 29th. That game is out on PC right now. LB Hung Tears is doing an amazing playthrough of that game. They usually go up on Tuesday afternoon slash evening. Um, uh, they're doing that with Lotus that's such a good stream. You should definitely check it out. It's one of my favorite things that we're doing right now. And it is a really buck wild game. So if you haven't played it on PC, don't have a PC, whatever, uh, it is coming to consoles, at least those two consoles on March 29th. Uh, March 29th is also the day that the switch will get WRC 10, which is a rally racing game. That game is already out basically everywhere, but now it is coming to switch. Aerial Knights Never Yield is coming to iOS and Android on March 30th. Uh, that's a pretty interesting game, which I think you should check out. Also, March 30th is the day that the director's cut of Death Stranding comes to PC. Um, if you haven't played that game, the director's cut is by far the best way to play it it's got some quality of life stuff and it is just a gorgeous interesting bizarre game that i think you should uh check out at least once uh that is march 30th uh, moss book 2 little you know that little mouse it's that little mouse vr game psvr it is coming uh to psvr platform on march 31st and weird west yeah, that's the Raph Cole Antonio joint. You know, uh, he left Arcane to form a studio, and Weird West is their first game. PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4, Xbox Series X and S, Xbox One, and PC on March 31st. We should we should have some uh, some coverage of that game when it drops. So uh, keep it keep it keep it tuned to uh, fanby.com. That's really it for for this week's stuff. So it's not a ton in volume. There are some good games there. Uh, not, not a ton of like brand new stuff. Really Weird West is only the, the brand new thing that I think should be on your radar unless you're a huge PSVR fan. Uh, I don't own a PSVR, but if that's your thing, um, the little mouse looks cute. Uh, the week after next, though, looks very uh, interesting to me. Uh, we got Lego Star Wars Skywalker Saga, MLB The Show 22, Chrono Cross, uh, MLB for, for, for MLB's part, uh, that's the first time that uh, game is going to be out on Nintendo Switch. So that's very interesting uh, for uh, sports perverts like yours truly. Uh, but yeah, we'll go over the full rundown next week. Uh, no details yet about Xbox Game Pass in April or uh, PS Plus. Uh, presumably the PS Plus news uh, will coincide with whatever this new Spartacus thing is. So we will detail all of that next week in case those details drop uh, and let you know what is available at your fingertips if you choose to subscribe to that brand new service. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's all we got this week. Uh, in terms of streaming... I don't know, folks. I, I streamed Bad Vegan. That's a terrible name. I do love shows about white white collar crime, though. I really do. And that's a pretty funny one. I don't know. It's bizarre. I did watch it. I, I we we've been watching a lot of old Housewives episodes. It's it's kind of whack right now. But you know what? I will recommend something. I will recommend a brand new TV show. It's called Severance. It's on Apple Plus. I don't watch a lot of Apple Plus stuff unless it's Ted Lasso, and and now you can't even talk about Ted Lasso because that well has been poisoned. Um, but Severance is a Ben Stiller 
directed, uh, uh, I think it's eight or ten episode series. Uh, not all the episodes have aired yet. It's got Adam Scott, you know, from Parks and Rec and other stuff. Um, it is a sci-fi show about what it would be like to separate your brain into work life and personal life. Um, and it's actually pretty interesting and suspenseful. Uh, it starts a little bit slow and it starts to really, really ramp up around episode four and I'm enjoying it a lot. So if you have an Apple plus subscription, maybe you bought an iPhone and just forgot that you have like a year of that. You should definitely check out severance. It is uh, a, a big surprise for me, um, in the streaming landscape at the moment. So definitely check that out. But, uh, that's all I got for you this week. Have fun. That is going to do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Andrew Shouldice, for stopping by and talking about Tunic. Tunic is available right now on Xbox Game Pass, PC, and Mac OS. It's for all you Mac heads out there. That's pretty exciting. Um, it is a really great game. Uh, I, I didn't really mention it in the interview itself, but it's a game that I've been having a really good time with. Uh, and uh, I think you should check it out. It's not necessarily a change of pace, as I also said, from a game like Elden Ring. It is challenging. It is mysterious. It does not hold your hand, but it is a rewarding game that I've been enjoying a lot. Uh, if you played Death's Door, for example, and liked that game a lot, there's a lot to like in tunic they are different in meaningful ways but i would say that those are maybe the closest parallels i can find uh, to contemporary games um uh, you can find andrew by the way uh, at dicey d-i-c-e-y over on twitter um to check out some updates from the game and he, he has some good roundups of uh other things that uh, folks are saying about that game so check that out um thanks again andrew you can also find my wonderful producer paul uh, at Polly mayo over on twitter thank you paul for all your excellent work you do on this and many other shows speaking of other shows we have a lot of them on the network six to be exact uh they're all wonderful truly they're all best in the biz kind of podcasts if you like games and entertainment and comedy uh you can find them all at podcastnet.work or over at fanbyte.com slash podcasts if you like this show please tell us some friends uh we have a good time putting it together every week it is a a, a, a true labor a true collaboration uh from a lot of folks that really enjoy uh, updating folks on the on the game space so tell your friends leave a review on apple Podcasts. that is super helpful a review and rating really helps us out and word of mouth just like tell some folks that this is a chill way to start or finish your week um, if you're interested in, in video games, that's a huge help for us. You can find me um, at Floppy Adult on Twitter. Um, every Tuesday morning, uh, I run a stream on twitch.tv slash fanbyte. Um, and it, it is called Tuesday Morning in the Show, but going forward, it's actually going to be very connected to this show. Uh, this week, we actually kind of did a, an experiment with that. We played Tunic on Tuesday morning, and we had the interview with Andrew Schuldice today. I would expect that kind of synergy moving forward. I love synergy, don't you? Uh, so yeah, please come to my Tuesday morning stream. It is every Tuesday at uh, 10.30 Eastern over at twitch.tv slash fanbyte. That is 10.30 Eastern AM over at twitch.tv slash fanbyte. Uh, you can find our Twitter account at fanbyte media. Uh, we're on TikTok. We do a bunch of amazing TikToks now because Lotus is amazing. Uh, our Instagram account looks great. Even Facebook. I don't use Facebook anymore. I deleted that shit. 
and I, I, I'm not going to look back. But if you're still on it, one, God bless. And two, you can find Fanbyte uh, on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, folks, until next week, you're welcome. Thank you.